to have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in it or turn it on, whichever the case might be, to Psalm 31. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, you can turn to page 461, although there's only one verse of the psalm on that page, so it's really 462 is where we'll be most of the time. Now, we're doing a series this summer during July and August going through a, a not the entire book of Psalms, but some nine different Psalms. And as we do that, I just kind of wanted to back up for a minute and just kind of share what I hope would be sort of some uniquenesses, some reminders of maybe some uniquenesses about the book of Psalms, why it kind of stands out from other parts of the Bible. So one of the uniquenesses, I think, of the book of Psalms is that the Psalms, in a sense, speak for us. Athanasius, who was a, a fourth-century church leader, has been quoted by, has been referred to as saying, most Scripture is written to us or speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. Really what the Psalms are is they're basically a collection of prayers by David and others where they're kind of pouring out what they're going through in life and kind of asking God to work and move in some way in their life situations. And there's a very much a sense you can read those Psalms and kind of be like, yeah, I feel that. And it's like those are expressions. So there's a sense in which God somehow, the Holy Spirit inspired these people, David and others, to kind of write in a way that it's them telling their story, them pouring their hearts out. But it's God's Word. But it's God's Word speaking in that sense for us. Another thing that's unique about the Psalms, which I hadn't really ever thought of until very recently, Athanasius, 4th century, now we're going to be really contemporary. This I actually learned on Twitter. Um, but a professor at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, where I attended, made the comment that not only are Psalms sort of speak for us, but Psalms also basically teaches how to disciple our emotions. I mean, when you read the Psalms, you kind of see David and others kind of pouring out their, their emotions, and yet you can see how the Holy Spirit, in a sense, walks them through how to process those things, how to deal with those things, how do they bring those things to make sense. We also know that the book of Psalms was pretty important in Jesus' life, and Jesus, in a number of places in the Gospels, will quote from the Psalms kind of his own way of how did he deal with his emotions. So there's very much a gift that the Psalms give us in that they sh- kind of show us how can I deal with my emotions and all the stuff going on inside me like Jesus? How can I do that? Now with those uniquenesses in the background, we do. We want to get into Psalm 31. And as we get to Psalm 31, let me just sort of make a very obvious statement and that is this. You and I are going to experience a range of emotions as we go through life. Okay? All kinds of things. It's pretty obvious. And In the case of Psalm 31, there's a whole lot of emotions that are around Psalm 31, basically around things that are hard, things that kind of bubble up inside us when life is difficult. Now, there is one oddity of Psalm 31, actually more than one oddity, but um, because of all the emotion that swirls around Psalm 31, scholars were like, well, is the main point of the psalm this, or is the main point of the psalm this, or is the main point of the psalm this? And I'm like, if I look at another commentary, I'm just going to be confused even more than I already am. Not only that, the scholars said, we don't even know how to outline this thing. Like, when you begin to feel emotions, do your emotions come out in a nice little package? Like, I'm feeling this, and I'm going to do that for five minutes, and then I'm going to feel this, and I may have that for about three hours, and then I'm going to feel this, and that's going to fill the rest of my day. 
Or do they just kind of burp up all over the place, unorganized? Now, mention was made in the adult class in there that I'm a little analytical. I think that was a compliment. I'm going to take it as a compliment. It was a compliment. Good. He gave me thumbs up. I have the mic. He had the mic in there. So he knows if he didn't give me thumbs up, he'd be in trouble right now. So it's really hard for me. I'm looking at this song going, it doesn't lay out structurally. So we're going to break all kinds of my analytical rules. I'm literally living on the edge right now, making everyone really nervous. We're going to jump into the middle of the psalm rather than go from the beginning of the psalm through the end, which would be hard to do. We're going to kind of jump in the middle because we want to make sure we understand the emotion that's driving David. Okay, so read with me from Psalm chapter 31, verses 9 to 13. David kind of burping up in a sense. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, tear on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. So how's David feeling in the moments of writing this psalm? Well, he's feeling distressed. He's feeling grief. He's feeling sorrow. He's struggling in part because of his own sin and what that's done. He's feeling isolated and alone. He's feeling forgotten. He feels broken. And he looks around hoping that something can change and he realizes nobody wants to be anywhere near him. In fact, he feels like they're against him. David had an enormous number of emotions to be discipled, to kind of walk through and deal with. Just like you and me, some of David's emotions simply became a part of his life because he was living life. Life was going on and things happened and he just began to experience some things. Some of the emotions that David is dealing with is really caused because he sensed people have done things to him or they've had attitudes to him, and that's created emotions within him. And some of his emotions are quite honestly being stirred up because of the consequences of his own sin, just like you and I can be in that same boat as well. David's in a needy place. I mean, in verse 9, he says, God, be gracious to me. I need your grace. He knows he's in a spot. He's in a predicament. He needs something. He's needy. But he's also vulnerable. He's got all kinds of things pulling at him, and he's not quite sure what to do. I guess you could also use the word that David feels helpless. I read these, those verses, 9 to 13, and Part of me is like, is David about to hoist that white flag of surrender and say, I'm done. I just can't take this anymore. Now, we're doing this series. That was really upbeat, wasn't it? That was really exciting. You're like, I'm glad I'm here this morning. We're doing this series in Psalms because we want to offer, in essence, pictures of God. We want to make it so that you and I see more clearly what does God look like? Because we believe, we said this when we started this series, we we believe that if you and I see who God is, 
we'd want to rightly respond to Him. So if we saw who He is, we'd want to rightly respond to Him. And part of that right response to God is if I see who He is, then I'd want to turn from my sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as my Savior. I'd want to do that. But not only that, if I see God, not only would I trust Jesus, but I'd also want to make sure that I live my life connected fully and completely. I'd want everything God has for me. I'd want that. I'd want my life to be transformed. That's why we're doing this series, which in one sense then raises a question. If David's feeling all of these emotions, they're swirling around him, who is God in that moment? Or to take it maybe a layer deeper, when your emotions are swirling, when life feels like all those things, who is God in that moment? When you're needy, when you're vulnerable, when you're helpless, who is God then? We don't know the context that David wrote Psalm 31, and we don't know what kind of was in his background. But in one sense, I don't know that that really matters because I would guess in this room, we can maybe to some measure relate to some of what he was feeling. I don't know what the right number are. Maybe there's 20 or 30 of you. We'll pick on this section. Maybe all of you guys are feeling distressed this morning. Maybe this section, you're dealing with grief and sorrow. You know, the funny thing about grief, it just hits you in the oddest ways. My wife picks the song, picked the songs for Sunday, today, in Christ alone, and as we're singing that song, all of a sudden it hits me, huh, that's a song we sang at my dad's funeral. And yesterday would mark a year from the last time I saw my dad physically alive on earth. I'm like, wow, I was doing great, I thought. Thanks, a whole lot. Grief just happened, so I, this is my section. I'm with you. I'm just going to sit down here, and we're all going to just sit together, okay? Some of you, and I don't know how many, maybe it's these two sections, you feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel forgotten. Maybe you don't want to admit it, but you feel broken today. I don't want to leave the rest of you out. Let's see, what can we put on you? Oh, you don't even know what you feel, but it's bad. <laughs> or maybe it's one plus one plus one equals three. You got them all. You got the whole enchilada. How's that? Anybody want to change sections? Everybody's going to move this way. Who's God when you feel that? Psalm 31 is going to tell us who God is in that moment is God is a refuge. God is, we think of refuge as a place. God's a person. But God is a person of safety and security and rescue. Read with me the first four verses of Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. 
And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net they've hidden from me. You are my refuge. Now, David's in a tough spot. He's writing for a tough spot. But as he looks at it and he looks at life, he says, you know what? I'm going to trust God in this. God is the one I'm going to lean on. David says, hey, here's the issue. I know all around me are these hidden traps in verse 4. I don't know where they are. I just know they're there somewhere. He's in some ways a little bit desperate. He knows he needs a safe place. He needs a secure place. He needs to be rescued. And as he's writing from that, he's saying, guess what? Who's God in this? Well, David's saying, I know God's a refuge. I know God is that safe person. As he describes in these verses, hey, I know that God listens. I know that God delivers. I know that God is strong and stable. I know that God can be there. He's able to save. When I was reading Psalm 31, I, I kind of had this analogy in my head that I was wondering, did David feel like he didn't know what a washing machine was? But you and I do. It's like, did David feel like he was stuck on the spin cycle of a washing machine? Because he's going from one emotion to another and he just can't. Life is out of control. He's desperate. He's just spinning. What does he do? Please understand this about God. When your life feels like it is spinning, like maybe you feel like you're spinning like a top. David is saying, Psalm 31 is telling us God is strong and stable and solid. He is a fortress that can be my refuge. He can do all of that for me. He can be my refuge. Now the question is, if God is a refuge, if that's true, verses 1 to 4 are true, that he's a strong fortress, he can be a refuge, how should that impact us? What should you and I do in light of that? Well, verse 5, I think, answers that question when it says this, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord and faithful God. What do we do if God's a refuge? David says really simple. If he's a refuge, then commit yourself to the Lord. David says, take your life, all of your swirling emotions, all of that stuff, and run to, in a sense, go to the refuge. Go to him. Now, here's one of the challenges of life or, or one of the options of life. When you feel like your emotions are swirling, all kinds of things going on around you. There's a lot of options you have to deal with that. You could drink or eat in excess. That's an option people pursue. You could try engaging in all kind of bizarre sexual stuff. People do that to escape those things. Some people try extreme physical pursuits. Some people even try self-harming themselves physically. They do that because they've got to deal with it somehow. They're trying to figure out that's an option. For some people, when there's all that stuff swirling around them, they're like, I'm just going to jump in and do crazy hours at work. That's how I'm going to deal with this. That's an option. Now, we're using the word options, but the honest truth is the Bible would probably call all of those responses, all of those options, 
idols. Running to things that you should run to God for, you're running to something else. Say, go to those. And David's going to say, you know what? No, if God's a refuge, don't go to that stuff. Go to God. He makes that clear, I think, in verse 6 when he says this, I hate those who regard, who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. If God is a refuge and we need a refuge, we've got to trust God. We need to go to Him, not to other things. Now, I want to back up just for a second to verse 5. Let me read the verse again. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. The first part of verse 5 may be familiar words to you. They may sound familiar. The Lord Jesus quoted those words in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, just as He gave up His spirit and died on the cross. It was the last words He said before He died. And I would say if there was ever a time when someone might have felt like their life was swirling around them and a range of emotions he must have felt, that would have been a time. Earlier this year, back before Easter, kind of leading into Easter, we took the time to go through the seven statements Jesus made on the cross. And clearly in those, he felt a range of emotions, all kinds of things sort of coming at him that he felt. And the truth is, not only did Jesus feel a lot of emotions at the cross, but the the crowd of people around him, they felt some emotions. Both before Jesus died and after he died, they experienced a lot of emotions. And you say, when Jesus was at Golgotha, the place of the skull, when he's hanging on the cross dying and he's feeling all kinds of emotions, what did he do with those emotions? What did he do? Well, he trusted God. He said, these, he said these words, I commit to you my spirit, I commit myself to you. So why did God do that? Why, why did Jesus do that? And maybe to tie it to us, why should you and I process our emotions the same way Jesus did? Why should we do it that way? Well, the second half of verse 5 says, hey, this God that you're committing yourself to is who? Well, He redeems us. He's the faithful God. He's a faithful redeemer. That's a reason to trust God. That's a reason to say, here, with all my stuff, I'm going to give it to you, God. But David says there's even more. Verses 7 and 8 kind of add some more to the picture. David says in the midst of this context, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Why trust God? Well, David says really simply, I'm going to trust because of God's steadfast love. Now, steadfast love is a word used a lot in the Old Testament. It's it's one, I know it's two words in English, but it's one word in, in the Hebrew language. And if you want a quick definition of it, maybe to think about it is, this is a committed love from God. It's God's committed love that's really focused on our good and ultimately His glory. And David is saying, God brings that love. When you are in the midst of your struggle, when things are swirling around you, they feel out of control, His love is there. His love is present. And His love is present not just to be 
I'm really sorry for you. God does sympathize or empathize with us in that moment, but God's love is ultimately there to take us where? To a broad place. To a broad place. That's huge to notice. The idea of a broad place is a place, quite honestly, folks, that's free of distress and anxiety. I read this past week that in Hebrew psychology, the way people process things in the Old Testament era was they would view distress as a narrowing or a hemming in. When everything's kind of crushing you, that was sort of distress. And what's God offering us? The reverse of that. God takes us from a narrow place to a broad place. He removes us. He helps us get, instead of feeling crushed, we're free. Now, I am far from an emotional expert. Truth is, I think the last few years, I finally figured out what an emotion is. Didn't like them before. Actually, I still don't like most emotions, I'll be very honest. I don't like the things that might lead me to feel verses 9 to 13. So a lot of my life, I did basically the same thing. I either ignited, it, suppressed it, or denied it. You're wondering, how did I lose my hair? That's how. But the honest truth is, that approach did absolutely nothing. It never got me to the broad place. It never did. The way to get to the broad place is to commit to Him. And I want you to think about Jesus one more time, kind of go back to the cross. Since He quoted this psalm, to kind of go back there for a second. See, Jesus trusted God with his swirling emotions. I mean, as he's hanging on the cross, as he's dealing with everything that we probably don't quite get, all what he was dealing with, but what did he do in that moment? He trusted God. He trusted that God was going to fulfill God's plan through the cross. Now, think about this. Jesus is trusting God. He's saying, God, here it is. Now, that did mean he died. That's not easy. But his death, in trusting God, his death led to redemption and the resurrection. You want a great description of a broad place? Being redeemed and being given life. Being resurrected. Being brought back to life. Folks, if you and I process our emotions like Jesus. If we will trust the redeeming and resurrecting God, I honestly believe we will discover there truly is a broad place we can know right now. And not only will God give us a taste of something far greater to come, God can also give us the peace to wait until we know the fullness of that. But God's offering that. He showed it to Jesus. Jesus, in that sense, was an example to say, here's how to deal with it. You trust. Yes, it's not easy. It may be hard. But God redeems and God gives life. You have a broad place.
David's not done kind of beating that drum. He wants to make sure we get some more. So if you look down at verses 14 and 15, I will trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hands of my enemies and from my persecutors. Okay, David's still in a tough spot. His emotions are still intense, yet he's affirming, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to give my life to you. David says, don't look to idols. Don't look to those other things. Look to God. Look to the one who is sovereign, the one who holds his time, my time in his hands. I'm going to look to him. He can take care of me. He can provide for me. God can be my refuge. See, here's the thing. You and I, when you're under stress, when I'm under stress, what do we do? I want a way out. We don't really care what the way out is. We just want a way out. And David says, no, you don't need just a way out. You need the way out. And the way out, the, the way out is the presence of God in your life. Look at what he prays in verse 16. He's saying what? Make your face shine on your servant. God, I need you. Save me in your steadfast life. I don't need just any old excuse, any old idol. No, I need you. See, folks, if you and I begin to look to God, we ask Him to be present. We ask, our, ask Him to make us aware that He's present. He shows up. He shines on us. And in His presence, that means you and I don't have to live with the shame and fear that so often battles us. And instead, when I live with the reality of the presence of God, I can all of a sudden have confidence. I can live with confidence. I think that's really the point of verses 17 and 18. They read, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently, insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. All those things that come against me, instead of me cowering in the corner because of them, God, let me live in your presence. Let me have freedom and confidence. David is saying God is a refuge, and he's offering us incredible goodness. He's offering us the chance to deal with our emotions and to live. Here's the rub, though. I don't know that anybody in this room is really good at living in a refuge. David says, you need one, go there, but I don't know that you and I do it very well. There's an old song that has a line in it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. How many of us actually do that? Now, we can wander from God in a lot of ways. We can wander from God because we kind of forget about Him kind of forget about his steadfast love. We can wander from God because there's other temptations around us and we're like, I'm going to go follow this temptation and this idol. Where does that get us? We can also wander from God because crying out loud, I'm smart, I'm intelligent, I'm going to do this thing. I can do this on my own. And so we try to do that and we wander away. So the question is, how do you stay in a refuge. We need it. David is saying, I've got all these issues. God offers me so much. How do I stay there? How do I live in a refuge? Because I'll be honest, how many of you want to be known as a refugee? And yet, when you read Psalm 31, how many of you 
are a refugee. So if you are one, how do you live as one? And I don't even know if that was anywhere close to half-decent grammar, but just bear with me. It was sermonic. It was rhetorical. How do you do this? Well, real quick, verses 19 to 22, and I do mean quick. David says, here's four gifts God gives us so we can live there. Okay, gift number one, why would I stay in refuge? Because of God's goodness. Okay, God's goodness, verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Okay, please understand this. If you've turned from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you are one of the people who fear God. And what happens when you fear God? David says God has this incredible goodness to bring to you. That doesn't mean life's going to be perfect, but it does mean God brings incredible goodness into your life. Why stay in refuge? Because it's good. Second gift God gives. Verse 20 will say the gift of protection. Okay, protection. Verse 20, fairly self-explanatory. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strides of tongue, tongues. He's there. He protects us. Gift number three, he, he gives us steadfast love. David's mentioned that, but he, he gives it to us. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord for he has wondrously shown us his steadfast, he's wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Now, in case you're not familiar with a besieged city, you probably, well, you probably are, but let's just review it. Basically, in a besieged city is you're trapped inside a city that is encircled by an army and there's no way out. No way out and nothing's coming in. How many of you want to live there? And yet, what does God say? What does David say God does in that moment? He brings his steadfast love, that love that's committed for my good and his glory. He brings it. Why stay in a refuge? Because there's steadfast love there. Even in the toughest moment, it's there. He's there. Gift number four, the fourth gift that he gives to get us to stay there is listening mercy. Okay, he gives listening mercy. Verse 22 reads, I have said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. You know, verse 22 is a very honest verse. David is a man after God's own heart. To put it in terms you and I would use, he's somebody who is trusting God as a Savior, trusting in that sense. He didn't know Jesus because Jesus hadn't come, but he was looking to that promise. We know who the promise is. It's Jesus. So someone who is trusting the Lord Jesus may find themselves in life sometimes feeling like God can't see me. God understands that you and I can feel like that. But do we realize this verse is saying, even when we feel like that, God still is here. And when we can't see God, maybe we speak. God hears. God brings mercy. Why stay in the refuge? Because when I cannot see anything, God still has listening mercy for me. 
let me try and land the plane, so to speak. How do we disciple our emotions? Well, we don't do it alone. All of this is really with God's Word, with His Spirit. But if I can point out to you, I think four things stick out coming out of this psalm. Okay? One is simply this. If you want to disciple your emotions, realize God is offering Himself as your refuge. Okay? This section, and I think we said all of you are, have all of them, God is your refuge. And if we're going to disciple our emotions, we start by remembering He is our refuge. Okay? Second thing that I think helps us in this, in Psalm 31, I think is showing us this, and that is we need to feel our emotions. Okay, I think Psalm 31 is saying, hey, label them, express them, acknowledge them, because you've got them. Do that. Now, to tie the psalm together at the end, I think David underlines some things in verses 23 and 24 that will give us the last two or highlight the last two. Verse 23, love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. Okay? Third thing, if I'm remembering who God is, that He's my refuge, and I'm expressing my emotions, then David is saying, love God. Make the decision to love God. Now, earlier David had used the word commit. He had used the word trust. In essence, love is the same thing. He's saying, I'm going to take my life and I'm going to commit it to God. When I remember who He is and in the midst of feeling all these emotions, I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to give my life to Him. If you want to deal with your emotions, that's what you do. And then David says there's a final thing. If that's true, then the fourth thing coming out of verse 24, if I take the first three steps, then I can choose to be courageous. I can choose to be strong. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, it is complicated. But David says, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. I can live right now with courage, knowing God's present. God helps me deal with these things. The fullness of all that God has for me, I don't have yet. But I know who He is, what He's done, and He will bring it. We don't have to feel like life is swirling. We don't have to feel like we're caught on the spin cycle. We don't have to raise the white flag and say, I can't do this. Because God is a refuge. And He wants to meet you with His steadfast love in your besieged city so that you can walk out of there and even live in there courageously and strongly. Would you pray? with me. Father, I am grateful to you that you are strong and solid and stable, that you quite literally are our refuge. Father, it is on one hand, it's humbling for us to acknowledge, maybe I can't handle everything that's coming at me. Maybe, Lord, we need to be humbled by you today to say, God, I'm feeling things and I don't know what to do. The amazing thing is, is you don't go, it's about time. You just simply bring your mercy. You want to help us here. 
Father, across this room, there's probably a lot of emotions. Different levels, different amounts. But the amazing thing is, because you are our refuge, you want to help us with all of that. I pray today that you would help us to see you are our refuge. And if we feel needy or vulnerable or helpless, we can come to you. We can know your goodness and your protection and your steadfast love and your listening mercy. Father, I pray we would desire to receive those things from you. And I pray, Lord, we would desire you, that we'd want to commit ourselves to you, the one who is our refuge, the one who is our redeeming and resurrecting God. Thank you for the hope that you and you alone offer us. In the very precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, we pray.